Hi, this is Dweezil Zappa, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, folks, this is Steve Vai, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks, so turn it up. Hi, this is Joe Satriani, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. This is Mike Keneally. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 280 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, Sean, coming from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This episode, we are very excited to bring you an interview with the extremely talented Mike Keneally. Mike has played with the likes of Frank Zappa, Dweezil Zappa, Steve Vai, and Joe Satriani, among others, and has over 20 solo albums to his name. Mike was gracious enough to talk to us about his career and his music, so without any further ado, here is Mike Keneally. And I say welcome to the show! All right, ladies and gentlemen, with me on the phone, I have Mike Keneally. Uh, Mike, uh, guitar player with Joe Satriani, played with Steve Vai, Frank Zappa, Dweezil Zappa. Uh, it's an honor to have him on the show, so uh, welcome to the show, Mike. Oh, thank you very much, Sean. It's good to be here. Um, like I said, you've had a very long, distinguished career. You've played with a lot of great musicians, and, and you got like your solo stuff and, and whatnot going on. So kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that and a little bit how you approach working with all these different kind of musicians and where you get your inspirations and stuff. So starting out, um, can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with music? Um, it was pretty much – it was – I remember it being a really musical household when I was growing up in Long Island in the in the 60s. There was always music playing on the radio or on the record player, and my dad was always whistling. Right. He, and he had a, a really nice natural singing voice, which I kind of took for granted at the time. I just figured, well, everybody's got a dad who sings beautifully all the time. <laughs> uh, and I didn't realize, you know, I, fa- I subsequently found out that right after he got out of the Army, after uh, World War II, that... Uh, he was offered a job as a as a singer with a with a big band, you know, like wow. a Glenn Miller type band, and also simultaneously offered a a, a a position with a minor league baseball team. So my my, my dad had an interesting life, but he he he, he didn't Good. do any of that. He he went into business with the, doing like a, at a sheet metal shop so that he could <laughs> so he could stay home and take care of his family. Right. But but you know, subsequently I found out oh there's there I guess there was something kind of uh, hereditary there musically. Uh, and, uh, I just, it was the sixties. It was like the mid sixties and I had a teenage sister. So there was right. Beatles music. There was Beatle music playing in the house a lot of the time. And I, I fell in love with that. I thought that, 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 that Beatles stuff was just unbelievable. It sounded magical to me. Right. And, uh, and it was on my seventh birthday that, that my parents got me this little electric organ and, uh, I had never played an instrument before and I didn't know that I wanted to. But I, when I saw that thing, I walked up to it and and found melodies on it right away. I started playing uh, "Painted Black" by the Rolling Stones, <laughs> um, and so it it just it made sense to me. So my, I'm I'm grateful, very grateful to my my folks for being you know hip to the fact early on that I had this connection with music and and like pushing me in that direction. And then they just 
supported me whatever I wanted to do musically as I was growing up. So I was right. real, real fortunate in that way. Now, when did you pick up the guitar? Uh, four years later, for okay. my eleventh birthday, I got a, I got an acoustic guitar. I, I loved playing the keyboard and still do. Mm-hmm. You know, with Satriani, I, I play keyboard and, and guitar equally. Right. Um, but you know, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, this 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 keyboard is really cool, and I like the organ, and I was I was into like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer at an early age and stuff, and and mm-hmm. I, I realized, oh yeah, you can do some pretty badass stuff on a, on a, a keyboard. But you know, all my favorite music was still being made. With guitars, I was, right. I was, you know, still, still freaking out about the Beatles and the Stones, and 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 I got into Zappa when I was like nine years old, and so I was like, well, oh, I, I got to play a guitar. A guitar <laughs> is just too cool, and uh, and so you know, they uh, my parents hooked me up with a, an acoustic guitar when I was eleven, and then from that point, I was just sort of, I was working on both instruments simultaneously as I was growing up. Right, right, and I guess the keyboard would help. You know, I mean, every you know. People say you should always start with like the piano or something, just get that music foundation before moving on to something else. I'm sure that kind of helped out. Now, you mentioned getting into Zappa at like nine years old, which, you know, I, you know, listening to Zappa, he's got a lot of really complex, you know, stuff. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, someone so young was getting into Zappa at that age. How did you come about working with Frank? Uh, I, I, I called up his office and asked for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and And he had always said, that his his was the only sort of uh you know world class touring act that right. anybody could get into if they could if they could handle the gig you know mm-hmm. it's like you're not going to you're not going to get in Led Zeppelin because you make a phone call but but with with Zappa if he was looking for somebody and you could and you could cut the gig then you you had a shot and so i t- i took the shot and it turned out that it was at a time that he needed somebody who could who it's like I I call up saying I play guitar and keyboards and I sing, mm-hmm. and he had just had a, a guitarist and singer, uh, a, a guy who was playing guitar and singing had left the band unexpectedly, and there was another guy who was a keyboard player who I think Frank had had fired sort of suddenly, right. and and that was the week that I called when he was in it had to fill those specific positions, so it was just like it was super good luck that i called when i did right. but it was but you know when i went up and auditioned for him it was just it was because i loved his music so much he was like it for me when i was growing up so uh i i had to spend a lot of time working on his material and 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 he he appreciated that so now with a catalog as huge as his i mean was it was it difficult learning all this stuff well it wasn't it, it wasn't because i it, it wasn't like i sat down and said i will now set out to learn the entire zappa catalog right, right. it was just that i listened to it my whole life and uh and because of this you know particular way that i came up musically which is that i i had organ lessons i had a, a keyboard teacher when i was a kid but most of what i learned about you know modern music and rock music and contemporary music and progressive rock and you know anything that's like more intricate or abstract was was from listening to records and, and, and figuring things out. And I think I developed an, an ear that way. Right. And, and just like a good memory for music. So with Frank, I listened to his music obsessively mm-hmm. and, uh, and just sort of internalized his melodies and lyrics and chord changes and stuff without really thinking about it. Although occasionally I would say, okay, today I want to learn this really screwed up, you know, <laughs> piece of, of music, you know, like the black page or sinister footwear or right. something. Some, some of his really, crazy stuff that would be like a personal challenge to see if i could figure that stuff out and then when i got it under my fingers it was it, i really felt like it was an achievement so right uh it was it was a combination of some of the more 
crazy songs that I actually did like set out to try to memorize and get under my, my fingers. And then all this other stuff that I just listened to over and over and over again. And so it was a part of me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when he would say to me at the audition, you know, play this song, try this song. He was just like naming songs at random. Right. And, and if it was something I'd never played before, I would say, okay, give me a second. And I would just like call it up from the memory banks. And I think he was checking that out going, Oh, this is an interesting resource. And it actually it had worked out that way at rehearsal. We had a we had a twelve piece band, and on a couple of occasions he would say, "Oh, I'd like to try something that we haven't played in a long time." Like there's a song called "Who Needs the Peace Corps." Mm-hmm. And we haven't I haven't played that song in like twenty years. I, I think that might be fun to give it a try. And then he turned and just looked at me and waited <laughs> and waited me to, for me to start playing it. And then I'd say, "Okay, well, I'm pretty sure this is the first chord." And then you know I would just like step through the thing, and little by little he would he would piece together. An arrangement for the band that you know that sort of started with my being able to remember how the thing went. It, it, it came in handy at, at rehearsal right. a couple of times, and also strangely enough, the fact that I was a Beatles freak came in handy because on that tour, Frank decided he wanted to play some Beatles tunes, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of the guys in the band were you know involved in in jazz and stuff and didn't necessarily freak out over the Beatles the way I did so. Right. So that that came in handy too that I knew the chords to Eye on the Walrus or whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, um and after Frank you played with Weasel for some time, was there a big difference in like how the two approached music? Well, it, it's you know Dweezil uh, would write these incredibly intricate uh structures, but he didn't come at them from a theoretical standpoint the way that that Frank did with Dweezil. That was just music that he felt I think from growing up in that household, right? Uh, and also, but but then it was like combined with this love of Van Halen and and you know just like real guitar pyrotechnics right. and you know with the way Frank approached guitar playing was was more as a you know a composer who's going to stand on stage and try to invent something new that was basically like a composition that he was coming up in the moment, right. and, you know, and I, and Dweezil was. At a very young age, he was real excited by the stuff that Eddie Van Halen was doing, and plus Eddie Van Halen would actually come over to the house sometimes and show him stuff. and And Steve Vai was in Zappa's band at that time, so right, you know right. that was obviously inspirational for for Dweezil as well. So you know, with, with Dweezil, it was very different from Frank because, for one thing, with with Frank, it was a twelve piece band with a five piece horn section, and so the right. arrangements were very elaborate, and it got into a lot of you know different kinds of music styles and things. It was almost more like a show band than a rock band, but, you know. Whereas with, with Dweezil, it was a five-piece band. It was definitely a rock band, you know. We right. did, but at the same time, it was sort of like, in a weird way, kind of an anti-rock band because we would get on stage and do the most just peculiar things. You know, in a way, you know, it was the early '90s, and I think there was something in the air where a lot of bands wanted to sort of alienate the audience at the same time that they were entertaining them. <laughs> right. So so it had this real, you know, subversive edge to it that, you know, that was in a way even more, you know, screwed up than what, what Frank was doing. Uh, and, we, like, we had this medley that was a medley of songs from the 70s. And when we started it, it was, you know, Dweezil's idea, hey, let's do 70 songs from the 70s. <laughs> and so and so we, we, you know, we put that together and that lasted whatever, it was 10, 15 minutes, I guess. Right. And then, and then we just kept adding songs to it until finally we had 200 songs in the medley and it lasted over a half an hour. <laughs> and, and some of the songs would literally would, would go by in like less than a second. You right. Know? 
So it was just constantly, and it, it didn't have like a steady beat throughout or something. It would just like it would be constantly changing tempos and keys. Like it would be, it was like a series of a hundred, two hundred tape edits, except that we were doing it live. And and uh, you know, the to watch the audiences sort of. <laughs> journey that they would go through when we were inflicting that on them was, you know because they just thought they were getting ready for the next song and instead we we come up with this half hour medley of just tiny little snippets of things and it was uh you know it was just sort of an interesting experiment in in what you can get away with oh, on yeah. stage. You yeah. know, there were times where the audience would almost become hostile and then we, you know it, it would go on it's sort of like the, I guess, sort of the Andy Kaufman thing of it, at, at a certain point it becomes funny again. Right. Uh, uh, so it was really exciting to take part in that because I was always interested in, like, music and comedy that was that was really uh, apart from the norm, you know, sort of just uh, anti-entertainment in a way. Right. You know, I, fi- I find hugely entertaining. <laughs> so so it was that, that was, you know, it was just like this weird little gorilla outfit with Louis <laughs> that, that went on for a few years. And, and then that ended up being really a great thing for me because, uh, you know, we got some new guys in the band after Josh Freeze was the original drummer and mm-hmm. he took off. Scott Tunis was, was on bass. He took off and we got in Joe Travers and Brian Beller, who I've ended up doing a million things with, you know, and Brian is, is now with me in the Satriani band and, yeah. and, and, and he was also in the, in death clock right. with me and stuff. So, you know, it's just like, he keeps following me into all my bands, <laughs> <laughs> I, but, and he's, he, but he's also in the aristocrats and he's true. like, you know, yeah. people are, are loving that in a huge way right now. So yeah. these, these are guys who have meant a lot to me and over the years. Um, now you, after Tweezle, you moved, when did, when did you start doing a lot of your solo material then? Uh, while I was still with Dweezil, actually, okay. I, I, it was uh, '92. Well, I mean, I was making like home cassettes and stuff, right, and, right. independently released stuff in the '80s. But as far as uh, like a, a CD or my first proper album, that was in 1992. I did an album called Hat, right? And, and that was while I was still playing with Dweezil. And then uh, I'm, while I was uh, still in Dweezil's band, I ended up making a second record called uh, Boil That Dust Speck and mm-hmm. that was that was the first album that had uh, Brian Beller and Joe Travers playing on part of it right and uh, and then I've ended up recording a bunch with those guys cool. now you uh, then after Weasel you started playing with Steve Vai and I guess mm-hmm. the first, actually the, probably the first time I actually got to see you live was when you were playing with uh, G3 in 97 uh, I know you guys were here in Pittsburgh and I was kind of blown away just watching you know is you know, Steve Vai was always a big hero of mine, and I was I was watching you too, and I'm like, wow, he's like, you know, neck and neck with Steve Vai. I'm like, this is this is, you know, I was kind of blown away just by watching both of you play off each other and, and, and work together. Um, can you talk about what it was like working with Steve and and like? Yeah, that was. That- that was uh, I, I always say it was like the, the the best guitar lessons I ever got paid to take, um, <laughs> because having to play that stuff with Steve was was such a challenge. You know, I remember during the initial period before we started rehearsing, where I was just working on the stuff at home, thinking, you know, what have I said yes to? Oh my God, I right. have to, you know. But what? But it was it's a different type of challenge to say Zappa. You know, with, mm-hmm. with Zappa. You, there would all, there would occasionally be these passages where you would just think this is no way that that humans can be capable of playing this, but but you just keep trying and trying and trying, and before right. you know it, 
you're playing it and you know you've you've evolved you've grown as a result with steve it was an endless uh you know uh just just parade of those moments where you know you're thinking how on earth am i gonna like play this in unison with steve or in harmony with steve especially when he's got you know just like these crazy long fingers and and right. you know I, I just have like normal human hands and, <laughs> and uh and uh, and then you you know you just have, get to a point where you practically hypnotize yourself or you meditate yourself into this region of I absolutely refuse to not do this you know I, right. I, I have I have to execute this thing even if it it just like goes against all known laws of physics and and that that's you know where Steve just like really upped my game uh, in having to learn how to play his stuff it just added so much to my. Uh, my arsenal of techniques right. and stuff. Uh, and then, you know, he just was like this, you know, whereas with, you know, F- Frank was Frank and there was, there was nobody else like him. And, and the Dweezil band was this, was this kind of, you know, just a sort of punk, uh, attitude, anti entertainment band. Steve is, a, is an entertainer, you know, right. he gets on, he gets, he can't help himself. He gets on stage and he's doing the Prince dance and he's twirling around and, yeah. and he, he just can't stop. You know, it, it he would, I think sometimes Steve would like to just sit on a chair for two hours and, and, <laughs> and just focus on the guitar, but he, he can't, you know, he, he continues to, to be a big, big entertainer right. and, and seeing how that affected an audience was, was a huge thing for me. You know, it's like, I, I realized suddenly that there's no shame in getting on stage and giving an audience exactly what they want, exactly what they came for. Right. And, you know, and Steve is fantastic at that. And plus, you know, it's just so inspiring as a player. It's crazy what he can do. Oh yeah, yeah. Now, so, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's right. So yeah, it was. I, I all these gigs were just like very, very different and very, uh, you know, so formative and and helpful for me in different ways. You know. Right now, you also and this was kind of interesting the uh, the vibe piano reductions <laughs> uh, where you took some of his you know his songs and you kind of played them out on the piano. Can you talk about that? Cause that seems like that would be something that would be very difficult to do. It was, that was the, that's the hardest album I ever made in terms of what it took out of me emotionally. <laughs> and, and Steve has a, a large collection of outtakes of me, uh, you know, just like swearing at the piano. <laughs> uh, you know, I would like to try to play something and it wouldn't work. And then I would just go off on a blue streak. But right. basically he just, he said, he asked me if I would, you know, take, 11 of his songs and he chose the songs and and he just said arrange them for piano and he didn't give me too much more <laughs> in, you know input other than that you know he'd say, he said and and so I sort of let each song kind of dictate okay am I going to play this really faithfully to the way he originally composed it or maybe I'll I'll take this opportunity to do some you know some drastic rearranging and reharmonizing of the of the parts and so there's some songs in there like Salamanders in the Sun where I, uh, you know, I, I just came up with a new harmonic, you know, structure underneath the, the right. melody. And then there are other things where you're just, just playing it exactly as written, like the, the God Eaters and, and Kill the Guy with the Ball. It was, mm-hmm. it was like compositionally all, all that I felt was required. And then it was just about, you know, bringing the dynamics and the, and the colors that, that you can really only get out of a piano. Right. And, and, but it was, uh, it was an endless process. It just took me forever to, to come up with the arrangements because I was trying to 
please myself, but I was also trying to please Steve. And, and, right. and so I was, I would record the stuff down in San Diego and then I'd bring the, the, the recordings up to Steve. And then he had the, the tapes for a long, long time. He spent years going over the, cause I recorded multiple versions of each song mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and he just like took a long time editing the thing together. And so finally I heard the finished album like five years after I completed <laughs> the recordings and I hadn't heard them in a long time. So it was really a surprise for me right. to hear to hear what had, what I had done there. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very pleased with that record. And, and, yeah. and he wanted me to do a second one, but okay. I was, I, and I did arrange uh, a couple of his pieces and actually ended up performing a couple of the new arrangements at a, at a festival in the, in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me just months and months to come up with arrangements that I was, you know, that I was happy with, even for just two pieces. And uh, and at a certain point, I said, Steve, if you keep waiting on me to do another 11, 12 songs, you know, we'll both be dead. <laughs> <laughs> so um, unfortunately, I, I I just didn't have the time or the or the energy or, you know. Right. And it, it, it also, you know, it's like it, it takes me so long. It, it's it's not like anybody's getting rich off of this stuff. And so there's, there's a less, a lot of time going by where I could have been working on other things to right. potentially, you know, bring income in that. And, you know, it's, it's a real labor of love to do those piano things. And oh, I yeah. did, I did love doing that first album, but it also took a lot out of me, right. but I'm, right. you know, I'm very glad that it exists. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to do that much. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's very cool. It's a very cool album. I, I enjoyed listening to it. It's, it's, you know, again, I was just real curious about how it was taking, you know, his compositions and moving it down to piano. I mean, you know, it, it, uh, it was, you know, it's a very interesting album. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I, my, you know, he chose the tunes, but what I was grateful for is that he, he chose a lot of stuff where the melodies are just so beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, and I think bringing them, you know, stripping them down to just a, a piano format allows the melodies to kind of speak out in a different way. And there, you know, there are a lot of people who, who are just, uh, have a hard time getting behind the fact that a guitar hero person like that mm-hmm. can, can, can write beautiful music and, and that the guitar is just a, you know, it, it's, it's one tool or one, one canvas that you use to, to, to work with. Um, but you know, it's, it's people just have like this weird sort of, uh, bias against the really successful, talented guitar right. player. Um, you know, it's, it's a strange thing in music. And, and so I was, I was happy to just sort of like shed a different kind of light on him as a writer because right. he writes such beautiful stuff. It's, it's very cool. Then after Steve, I guess you started working with Joe. Um, well, that was a while. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I stopped. I left Steve's band in two thousand one, and and right. for for nearly a decade was was really focusing primarily on on uh, on solo albums and okay. stuff. And uh, and then in, in the next sort of other major gig that I got was in two thousand seven when when Brendan Small asked me to go out with uh, with Death Clock. Right. And then, and then that turned into an unbelievable thing. It's like those tours were so much fun yeah. and the shows were outrageous. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we, we might be able to, to, to do some more. It's a, it's always a, it's a big production doing the death clock thing. Yeah. Death, uh, death clock shows are fun. I got to see, see it a couple of times when it came into Pittsburgh and, uh, I mean, for those of you who don't haven't seen it, it's, you know, you got the big screen and then you guys are all kind of in the dark. 
Yeah, we're sort of like the you know the orchestra. We're the we're the pit band, you right? Know? Um, the focus the focus visually is on the is on the the animation, right? Now, how hard is that to play to the animation? Um, it's it's easy for all of us except Gene Hoagland <laughs> because he's the guy who's got the headphones on, and, and so he's listening to the the click, right? Uh, and he's listening to the the soundtrack, and so it's his job to keep the whole band organized with with the visuals because it's a nonstop thing. The show starts and mm-hmm. and for one hour, everything that we do on stage has got some sort of visual corollary, something that happens on the screen that you know is that we have to be uh, synchronized with. Right. So it's all it, all we have to do is play with Gene, <laughs> which is easy to do because playing with Gene is just like getting on on a locomotive and and, right. and hanging on. You know, he he's a, an absolute legend on on for metal drumming. Oh yeah, um, it's just incredible. So that's really exhilarating because when it's when everything is clicking, the the lights and the smoke and the and the visuals and and the audience just losing their minds and and uh you know it's very exciting i love the death clock performances and hopefully next year we'll get to do more oh that'd be very cool I'd like to see now had you been yeah. have you played were you, you weren't really playing metal at all before that so no was that- it was funny it was funny because you know i, I steve's music would sometimes tend in that direction dweezil's music would sometimes tend in that direction but it definitely wasn't like you know, metal in, in any kind of legitimate sense uh, or conventional sense, I should say. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, with Death Clock, Brendan really, even though a lot of people perceive that, that the show, the TV show Metalocalypse is is, uh, is making fun of metal, you know, it's, it's really making fun of celebrity, the whole idea of mm-hmm. entitled celebrities. Uh, and the backdrop of it is metal, which, which Brendan absolutely loves. You know, he wouldn't, work so hard at, at making the songs the way they are if, right. he, if he didn't have a genuine love for the form. So he did the TV show. You know, we met on MySpace, <laughs> of all things, in 2006. Because, you know, it was my girlfriend, Sarah, who said, hey, Brendan's on MySpace. And we were big fans of this other cartoon he used to have called Home Movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, she said, hey, you should send Brendan a message and say hi. So I just wrote him and said, "Hey, I'm my name's Mike Keneally. I don't know if you know who I am, but you know my girlfriend and I are huge fans of what you do, and just wanted to say hi." And he wrote back and said, "Dude, <laughs> huge fan. Uh, I saw you uh, do a clinic at Berkeley College of Music when I was a student there in 1996, and it had a big impact on me. and And, uh, and we should uh, we should get together and hang out. And oh, and by the way, I'm working on this new TV show. It's about metal and stuff. It should be pretty dumb, or whatever." You know, he's a little casual about right. it, and then and then the show comes out, and it's huge. You know, the Metalocalypse had a big impact, mm-hmm. and then the, he put out an album of songs from the show, and it became the fastest and best-selling death metal album in like U.S. record history. And this was at a time when you know the the music business was really starting to go south. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was it was big news that somebody managed to sell fifty thousand copies of something. And uh, and Death Clock album came out and sold you know hundreds of thousands of copies. So it's like okay, I guess we need to do this live. And what I didn't realize about Brandon is that even though he's incredibly capable and he had done these these songs and he's he's playing these ridiculous guitar parts and he's he's doing all the vocals and stuff, he had never really been in a band. <laughs> you know, even right. when he was, when he was coming up and he was like going to Berkeley and stuff. He had, uh, I think, stage fright issues, and the way that he chose to deal with that was by working out at comedy clubs. He would, he put together comedy routines because 
he had an instinctive ability to be funny. Right. And so that was like his version of being in a garage band was, was like getting up and doing comedy. And he was doing music, you know, still at, at, by himself. But he didn't have that experience of like being with a full band and a bass player and a drummer and figuring out how to make things work in a live uh, context. So, you know, he asked me to be in the live death clock and I'm like, man, I, I, it sounds like so much fun, but you know, I'm really not a metal musician. And he just said, oh, you can do it. It's easy. <laughs> so we, we just spent, you know, several days and, and, you know, because basically what I play with death clock is sort of like Brendan's first overdub, you right, know, right. you know, it's like the, the, all the, I play a lot of the rhythm stuff and then I play, you know, the, the harmony parts on, on lead lines and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so he showed me everything and then, uh, and then he's like, hey, who can you recommend for a bass player? And I said, well, I got Brian Beller who's been doing my stuff for years. And he goes, oh, I would love it if Brian was in the band. And that was great for Brian because his thing when he was growing up was Metallica. You know? Right. Uh, and then we had Gene Hoagland on drums. So we immediately had legitimacy there. Right, right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, got out on, on tour and started doing it. And you wonder how people how it's going to go over with people are they going are they going to think we're making fun of metal are they going to you know who is this like old guy on the second guitar what's going on here and uh, <laughs> and it turned out that people you know freaking loved it and the the tours were totally fun and yeah. you know even though there's comedy involved in the thing when we're on stage we're deadly serious you know we just, we just want to play that stuff as 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 hard and as well as we can play it so right. it's it's very exciting yeah and, and- I mean, I'm excited about the possibility of there being more. So, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a very cool, uh, cool thing. And then, and then, you know, a couple of years after that, I got a call kind of out of the blue from, from Joe Satriani. Right. And, uh, and initially he was only interested in me playing keyboards. And actually for the first three or so years that I was in his band, I only played keyboards. Um, and, but the reason he called me was pretty cool. It was like, he was saying, you know, he was getting ready to make this album, it was 2010, yeah. It was called uh, Black Swans and Wormhole Wizards. He goes, mm-hmm. I, got all, I got all this music, and and I'm really thinking that I want to add a permanent keyboard player to the band. And I was going through in my head you know, all these all the keyboard players I know, and I'm thinking, no, 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 it's, it's too much this, not enough that. And then he thought back to when you know he used to tour with me in G3, and he goes, oh, man, I should call Mike. And, he's, and he thought the, the reason why specifically is because... I'm a guitar player, right. and even though I wouldn't be playing guitar in the band to start with, he he knows that I understand how a guitar player thinks, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know what what you can do, how to do certain voicings on a keyboard that's not going to get in the way of a guitar, kind of fill things out and and uh, you know just sort of like expand things for live performance, and uh, and so I ended up making that record for him, and we 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 went on tour, and so this, this album that's just come out. Shockwave Supernova is the the third album that I've, I've done with Joe, and we've been touring every year. And we're and next month we we start another tour that's going to go on for the better part of a year probably. Um, and it's just it turned into this really unexpected thing. Uh, and I'm so I'm so grateful to be involved with him at a at a point in in the music business where it's really not normal right. to have somebody that's like putting out instrumental records and still has a major label deal and still gets to tour in a comfortable fashion and, and still has 
many, many fans around the world, you know, that, that those type of opportunities are really few and far between right now. So mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm super, super grateful to, that, to, to be a part of it at the moment. It's like so much fun. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it is now working with, you know, I mean, each one, you know, you've worked with Frank and Steve and, and Joe and they're all completely different. Is it in death clock and everything? Is it hard to keep everything organized and balanced? So you kind of know what's going on, you know, <laughs> because I mean, you got your solo stuff too, which, you know, scam bot and, and whatnot. And yeah, I mean, balancing I, it all or it's just, you know, I'm a, I guess I'm a bright, shiny object kind of guy. It's, it's like I, I can only sort of focus on what's moving in front of me right. at the moment, and uh, and and so it's it's never been that difficult, or you know, it's it's probably you know left all kinds of psychological scars that I, I can't even <laughs> like identify. But but it's it's always just you know my whole approach to everything I do is okay. What can I do right this moment that's going to like make the music as as good as as it can be right now? You know. And and try to focus on nothing other than that. And and if I'm if I've been hired to do a gig, then I'm just like focusing on what's the what's the best I can bring, what's the best of myself that I can bring to this moment to to uh, you know allow this moment of music to flourish, right? And uh, and to to reach people and to make the the guy in charge happy and to make myself happy, you know. And it's not it's not really a thing where I'm you know running that through my head like a ticker tape all the time it's mm-hmm. it's it's an instinctual thing at this point but you know it's i'm de- when i'm on stage playing keyboards with safiani i'm you know i'm not suddenly thinking oh wait a second am i playing guitar with death clock right now or am i playing <laughs> keyboards with safiani you know it's, right, it's, right. it's 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 just about okay this is this is the the uh this is what's required of me in this moment and that's what i'm going to do and, uh, and, and so that's, I guess that's why I've, I've managed to be involved in these, in these cool different, you know, band, uh, situations and all these, you know, inspiring, cool right. guys, uh, is, is because I was able to, you know, compartmentalize I, I, when I'm, when I'm working for Zappa, I'm working for Zappa. When I'm working for Vi, I'm working for Vi. And if it gets to a point like with, with Steve, you know, it got to the, the, I'd been in his band for about five years and I realized that. My passion at that moment was to focus entirely on on uh, my solo stuff. Right. So from from 2001 to 2007, that's that that was my focus. Uh, and then you know, right at the point when I where I was realizing, hey, you know, I'm not really selling enough albums that for this to make sense. That's when the Death Clock first came along, and and then Safiani came along. And then the challenge was, you know, the main challenge, especially if you're involved in in multiple bands, is mm-hmm. scheduling. Right. You know? Uh, and that's really an exciting challenge for, for Satriani right now because uh, he's got Brian Beller and Marco Miniman and me in his band right now. So sometimes, you know, and Marco and Brian are both in the Aristocrats right. and Brian is in my band and Marco is, is in Stephen Wilson's band. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, these are all, you know, acts that have, you know, different schedules and, right. and touring and, and, and things that have to be dealt with. So sometimes there's like, some really crazy rigmarole that you have to go through with scheduling to make sure that everything works. Right. Uh, and it ends up, you know, especially with Marco and Brian have been just going full tilt on aristocrats recording and touring as much as they possibly can. And then, you know, and then Marco playing with Steven Wilson on top of it. So they're like, they're on the road for, 
years at a time practically they hardly ever see home you know yeah. you know i've been home because i've been i've been recording i've been working on on you know finishing scambot 2 which right. i you know we finally finished the mixes last week so that's oh, an cool. album that's an album i've been working on for years and it's sort of been in the background of my life while i've been doing everything else even while i was making other albums i was working on scambot 2 so i'm 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 very you know happy that we're finally seeing the light at the end of the tunnel on that one well, yeah, I mean, I was going to, I was going to ask about Scambot too, but I was going to also ask where you find time now to work on your own stuff, and and because I mean, obviously, you go, you have all your ideas that you want to get out there too. Yeah, well, you just look at the, you look at the calendar, and you right. say, well, these are the weeks that that I could do it, you know, and I will not, I, I won't book any gigs for for uh, for you know this span of time to, to to get the album done. And then, you know, you run into something where, you know, obviously while you're making an album, you're not earning any money. So you right. have to you have to be very, uh, you know, very careful. Uh, and that sometimes results in it taking a long time to get an album done. And, you know, plus when it's, you know, music as as uh, peculiar as mine, where it, it sometimes takes a long time to to find the right balance of all the elements because mm-hmm. uh, you want the thing to sound you know, good. You want it to sound pleasing and not just like a, this uh, unbalanced collection of, of of a million notes. You know, right. so it, the mix can go into months at times where you 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 know work for a week on on a batch of songs and you know just like try to get everything in proportion. And then you might I I might go on the road for a couple of months before I can get back into the studio to work mm-hmm. on my stuff. But in the meantime, I've been able to listen to what I did the last time and, and take notes. Oh man, this is just not working. This is out of balance. The guitar is too loud here. The vocal's not loud enough here. The bass needs to, you know, it needs to be brightened up and have a little more compression added in order to really make this song pump. And, and right. you know, you, you come up with all these things. You know, that's kind of a luxury of the modern recording age, uh, where whereas in the past you you would just go into the the studio and you had time booked. And you were paying for that time, and and you had to, uh, you know, by the end of it, you had you came out with a finished mix, and if and if you weren't happy with it, then then too bad. Right. Uh, now the way it's been, I mean, we we have an engineer, Mike Harris, that we have to pay for his time, but we we have our own studio at my manager's house where, you know, we pretty much have unlimited time. Right. It's, it's right. just it's still. You just have to be careful not to take forever because when you have that sort of unlimited flexibility, you can easily disappear down a rabbit hole. Right. But you know, in in my case, it, it's I it's it may sometimes feel to others like it, I'm taking unbelievably long. And on this album, it did it did take a long time to find. Well, first of all, it's a lot of material. It's it's mm. over two hours of stuff. Oh, wow. that, that we've been working on. It's you know, it's 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 one main album and then another album of songs that didn't fit on the main album that just happened to make a really nice album on their own. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, making two albums simultaneously of, you know, really intricate stuff with a lot of layers. And I was trying not to make it sound cluttered. Uh, because the first Scambot album that came out six years ago is a very crazy dense album with a lot of, you know, really bizarre stuff on it. Mm -hmm. And I, and I wanted this album to feel a bit, you know, it was more melodic, more immediately uh, approachable, and and just uh, smoother going down. You know, so it it took a while to find the the, the right balance on all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's it's it, it's what I'm looking forward to now because I've had this album in the back of my head for so long. Is right. like 
It's like finally getting it done and then going out on this, on this Satriani tour and not explicitly thinking about making another solo album for a while. You right. know? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have, cause you know, as, for years and years and years now, there's always album, 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 just, you know, cranking away in the back of my head. Got to, got to finish that album. Uh, it'll be nice not to hear that voice for a change. <laughs> <laughs> do you, uh, I mean, do you write when you're out on the road or do you mm-hmm. just, okay. Yeah. And, uh, music and, and lyrics. And a lot of time it's, it's just mumbling things into the phone, you know, right. the, and then, and then later on, you bring that into the studio, and there, are, there's a there's a ten and a half minute song on this album that started with me in a in a, a you know standing in a Target store uh, <laughs> with, with the iPhone going, and then it's a it just it would just it, to anybody else would look like I was insane, but then you know you know I ended up sort of teasing that germ of an idea into right. this you know epic thing and it's because everything's got to start somewhere exactly uh so there's a lot of that and i and i ended up i usually end up writing a lot of lyrics on the road and and, uh and sometimes recording some stuff in the computer uh yeah like you said you know that's the the beauty of of technology today is you can do it anywhere now and yeah marco makes entire albums pretty much start to finish while we're on the road you know he's in his in in his hotel room right you know making an album (laughs) (laughs) you know and he gets the recordings home and then tracks the drums in his in his uh home studio but you know apart from that he's pretty much just doing everything in his little hotel room so it's pretty amazing now with uh scamboy too you said it's 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 finished and so is do you have uh you know plan for release date soon or is that still kind of yeah it'll be out before the end of the year okay we the guy that that does our our mastering for us Mm -hmm. is uh is is uh taking some time off so we have to wait a little while before we can get the album mastered uh, and we're and right now now that the that the music is essentially finished, we are into the the artwork phase, and I have a right. lot of write, I have a lot of writing to do because Scambot is a is a concept mm-hmm. uh, that is eventually going to be a trilogy. There, there, you know, the idea is for there to be a Scambot three at some point. Even though I'm not I'm I'm intentionally not thinking about that right. <laughs> now. Um, but there's a there's this long sort of narrative thing that takes place. That I have to flesh out in the liner notes, the right. liner notes. So I'm working on that right now. Okay. Then we still have the artwork to finalize as well. So there's still plenty to be done. But I'm I'm hopeful that we'll get the thing out in November at this point. Okay, cool, cool. Um, I mean, when you were working on it, you know, you said mentioned it over a few years. Do, you don't set deadlines for yourself, or do you just kind of? Does that? Well, de- depending on the project, like like. With with Scambot, one of the ideas about Scambot is that it it, it takes place at its its own pace, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that's why while I was I've been working on Scambot, I I put out like five other records, right. you know. Uh, but uh, it's and and I started working on Scambot One, which came out in in two thousand nine. I started working on that in, in two thousand five, and in fact, some of the music that's on this album was begun way back then, and 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 even. You know, there are some other pieces that were done in 1999. So, in a way, this album's been in the works for for like 16 years now. Uh, and it's it's yeah, it's it's just something that's in the background of, of my life or has been while I've been doing many other projects. Right. So that's why it's it's a considerable relief to be you know, at the finish line. And uh, another reason why I'm I'm like <laughs> I'm I'm not eager to jump into the next album project right away. You right. Know? It's it's like I've, and I've 
this is going to be something like my 26th solo album. And, and you know, that a lot of people don't even know that I have one solo album. So right. there's, there's, there's more than enough work there for, for people to discover. Uh, I don't feel like I need to necessarily continue adding to the stack. Cool. Um, but I, uh, or at least not right away. You right. Know? Uh, but, but in the meantime, you know, Scambot 2 is essentially two albums worth of material. There's plenty there for, for people to chew on, and I'm really, really happy with the way it turned out. So I will I will let it speak for me for a while. <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing that. Um, so Scambot 2 is done, and you're about to go out on tour with Satch. Uh, have, have rehearsals started yet? That starts in early September. Okay. Cool. We uh, yeah we'll, we'll do a week in, uh, in up and I think in Sammy Hagar's rehearsal space is usually where we practice right uh, and then we'll have about a week off and then we uh, head to Europe on the the 14th and we'll be in Europe for two months and then we got the holidays off and uh, in January I'll be uh, I have this other project that I'm interested in, in doing with uh, a drummer named Chris Myers who's the drummer for a band called Umphreys McGee yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, he plays a lot of the drums on Scambot, and uh, and a bass player named Pete Griffin, who was the original bassist in Zappa plays Zappa. Okay. And uh, and Pete and Chris are the 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 bass and drummer on on a lot of uh, Scambot, and I, I have this idea for a band project that I'm, I want to try with those guys. So we might mess around with that. Cool. You know, putting writing some stuff together and and uh, and just like seeing what what. Uh, ideas we can come up with in the early part of next year. And then Satriani tours the States in, in February and March. Okay, cool. And then there'll be more, you know, Satriani touring in other regions around the world throughout 2016. Right. And, uh, and then I, uh, you know, there's, there's other possibilities and projects that are presenting themselves and I'm, you know, I'm waiting to see where they land. But right now there's a, a decent amount of stuff on the, on the table to be, uh, to, to be dealt with. Cool, cool, cool. Well, I want to you know, thank you for uh, talking to us. It uh, was a pleasure talking to you, and I'm really looking forward to Scambot 2 and everything else you've got going on, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see you here in Pittsburgh real soon. Yeah, I, well, the, the U.S. Satriani tour is uh, is in the spring, so I, I, I can't imagine we'll pass up Pittsburgh, so hopefully, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll see you then. All right, cool. Thanks a lot, Mike. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, Sean. Okay, I'd like to thank Mike for taking the time to talk to us. Be on the lookout for Scambot 2, and hopefully we'll see Mike with Joe Satriani early next year. That about wraps up this episode. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to contact us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks. And check out our Instagram at instagram.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Until next time, thanks for listening.